0: Not long ago, I went to see this movie called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Hadn't read any reviews, hadn't seen any ads for it. Didn't know anything about it, really, except that it was by Errol Morris, a documentary filmmaker whose work I like. And the friends of mine enjoyed it. And it was great. It had funny moments and reflective moments and interesting characters. Totally satisfying, soulful film. And after the movie, I'm walking through the theater lobby, and I see the poster for the movie, which I somehow missed on my way in. It was a bright, unnatural yellow. The main characters from the film are photographed with this fisheye lens. So their heads are huge and their bodies are tiny. And they're in big print. The poster says these words, The bizarre at its best. And I realized what was going on. Someone somewhere thought that this film was wacky. Or they thought they could sell it as wacky. Which, if you see the film, is astounding. It's a great film, but it's not wacky. There's a whole section in the film about death, meditation on death. It's not wacky. Tom Bernard is one of the co-presidents of Sony Picture Classics. He saw what a great film Fast, cheap and out of control was, had bought the distribution rights from Errol Morris in a bathroom at the Sundance Film Festival. It was, he says, the only quiet place to get anything done without competitors overhearing. And he says they market the film as wacky for a simple reason... Wacky Cells. Market film is wacky, and people come to see it.
1: Well, I mean, to me, one of the ultimate wacky cells on a movie was Brazil.
0: And, and what was the sell? I don't even remember that. What was the oh, ad campaign? It was
1: just a bizarre uh, campaign with sort of a sort of South American lettering style, you know. Uh, right. It uh, had Brazil and, and a lot of wacky lines and colors. Uh, we had a movie, Crumb which was, you know, a very, very moving film. But uh, to it, talk about R. Crumb, the guy's a wacky guy. Even uh, even in, in The Company of Men, was, it was a very dark comedy. And, and wacky to some extent. And That's a movie we released, and I think the campaign is, is, is a bit strange. A bit wacky.
0: I don't know if you've seen any of these films, but they are every single one of them. You know, they are very dark films. These, these are bleak films, really. I suggested to Mr. Bernard that Wacky seems to miss a lot of what these films are about. And he said, no, 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 no. Look at the four characters in Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Two of them are scientists. One's an expert on robots. One the world's leading authority on naked mole rats. There's a lion tamer. There's a guy who carves trees and bushes into the shapes of animals. And said, so Mr. Bernard, that is, by most people's objective standards actually kind of wacky
1: I, the film is a very strange film the people are very strange and i think in word of mouth people would talk about it and they say oh, look at these crazy guys let's go see what they're up to
0: you know what i realize as we talk is that i guess i just don't think of people as wacky i guess some people just think of people as wacky and some don't. i mean when i think of all the people in the sarah morris film where i think of our crime i mean i think of them as being people who are fundamentally very very serious do you see them as crazy guys or eccentric, you know, eccentric
1: guys or wacky guys? I think they're very eccentric and very wacky. And, you know, I think that if you know people in your world that you consider genius, and I think these guys are all geniuses at what they do, they sort of have a view that is so focused and, and so, would people call Albert Einstein, eccentric?
0: With all respect, Mr. Bernard, who, as far as I'm concerned, is doing God's work, distributing these unusual, interesting, amazing films. With all respect, I have a different point of view about this. Wacky, to me, seems to miss the point of everything interesting. Wacky eradicates empathy and thoughtfulness and feeling. Wacky is what people say when they're too polite to say freak. Wacky is what people say when they don't want to feel anything or think anything. Wacky is what people say when they don't know what else to say. When you call somebody wacky, you're ignoring They're ignoring who they are and painting a big smiley face on top of their real face. You know, I didn't used to have an opinion about wackiness one way or another. But after I saw Fast Cheap and Out of Control, I did. And that opinion was death to wacky. Death to wacky. And then, we started putting this week's program together, this week's radio program. And everything I thought about wacky got thrown up in the air again. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, 13 ways of looking at wacky. Act 1, negative. Writer David Sedaris faces a sheet of glass, a glass of milk, a floor of carpet tacks, and a photographer with big, big ideas. Act 2, the good, the bad, and the wacky. We squint our eyes and try to distinguish good kitsch from bad kitsch, good wacky from bad wacky. Act three, the politics of wacky. A conversation with Michael Lewis about Republicans, the press, and of course, wackiness. Acts four through ten, well, you'll see about those. Act eleven, self-proclaimed wacky. We find someone who is not called wacky by marketers or promoters. She calls herself wacky. Act 12 sidestepping wackiness and seriousness, and embracing both. Act 13, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Wacky, that story from our own Sarah Val. Stay with us. Act 1, Negative. David Sedaris is a regular contributor here on This American Life, a Morning Edition commentator, author of the books Naked and Barrel Fever, His stories are the sort of complicated mix of seriousness and funny that is easy to love, but comes nowhere near, I have to say, nowhere near to wacky. What follows is a set of true stories, plus a fictional story inspired by the true ones.
2: I wore my new tie to this afternoon's photo shoot. It was an extravagant purchase, but I justified it thinking of all the money I would have spent on ties if I'd had a real job. I thought the magazine would want a picture of me standing with my book, so I packed a copy along with an extra shirt in case I had something against white. I arrived at the studio where the photographer said, "I'm not loving that tie much at all." He didn't care for the shirt either and called out to his assistant, "Brian, hey Brian, do we still have that t-shirt from last week?" The t-shirt was produced and I explained that I'm incapable of wearing anything with words on it, especially the words "deliveries" in rear. "'You are gay, aren't you?' the photographer asked. "'It says right here in your press kit. Have I got the wrong person?' "'When it came to wearing that T-shirt, he most definitely had the wrong person. "'Well, maybe you can turn it inside out,' he said. "'We won't be seeing much of it anyway, since I'd like to get you crouched down on your hands and knees. "'Seeing as you're an author and all, I thought it might be fun if we shot you cleaning the bathroom floor. "'The black and white tiles are going to look great.' So what do you say you change out of that shirt and we get started? Then he called for his assistant to fill up a bucket of sudsy water. Adding that the bubbles on top should be as fat as possible.
3: As a professional photographer, I have to say that my two greatest assets are my tenacity and my sense of humor. These are the, the tools I use on a daily basis because it's not just knowing how to operate a camera, it's also knowing how to get into a person's head, you know, really camp out for a while. I, I'm, I'm not saying this right, so l- let me give you a little example. After she won the Pulitzer Prize, everyone thought of Bobby Fingerton as some sort of a genius, which is fine, but you could tell she'd really let it go to her head. It wasn't physically huge, not like a medicine ball, but you could see that she had this, um, this, uh, false idea of her own value or whatever. Um, this is something a person like me can spot right off the bat. It's a gift I have. Just like my sense of humor and my tenacity. I had seen her picture in a few of the weeklies, and she was always, um... I mean, she was always enthroned. You know what I mean? Just just sitting there propped up against the sofa cushions with a quill in her hands. Terrible pictures. They they put you right to sleep, but that's how it is when the photographer caves into someone who's clinging to this very... very... antique uh... destructive sense of dignity. She clearly likes to play the Grand Duchess, but... Me, I'm I'm looking for something wacky, something nutty that will jump off the page, saying, "Hey, is this person crazy or what?" You know, I mean, people like that. It's a it's a kick. I mean, it's easy when you're taking a picture of an actor because. They'll just do anything for attention. I'm like, you know, excuse me, Mr. Cudahy, but do you think you could maybe dip your head into this cauldron of steaming cocoa? And before I can tell him we need to wait a while and let it cool down, I look up at the guy's already done it. I mean, there he is, his skin peeling off in sheets, and he's there asking if he should do it again because, I mean, that's the way actors are. I mean, They're not calling out the hounds or blubbering to their publicists because they know how to cooperate and have a little... Fun. I mean, actors are no problem whatsoever, but get yourself a politician or anyone owning a typewriter and you're in for a first class headache because these people have egos like you wouldn't believe. And you can quote me on that. Can, can we get another round here? Yeah, thank you. You're, you're a lovely individual. <laughs>
2: I told myself I'd try to be more aggressive and stand up to these photographers, but so far it isn't working. I'd like to ask if they've read or even seen my new book, but the question sounds snotty. I understand that they're busy people, I'd just like to know why they think I should be pictured drinking tea with a stuffed squirrel or cradling an oversized can of fruit cocktail. I've never written about either of those things. My theory is that if you're good-looking, they'll dress you up in embarrassingly trendy clothes, but at least allow you to stand upright. If you happen to be on the plain side, they'll come up with a gimmick designed to make you look even worse than you already do. To complain is to insist against all reason that you're good-looking, and that's even more embarrassing than going along with the humiliating little scenarios these people and we seem so proud of. Today's photographer studied me for a few moments, before asking if I'd brought another change of clothes. With the help of his assistant, he then proceeded to clamp a large sheet of glass to a standing metal frame. Once the window was securely in place, he asked his assistant for a carton of milk. Then he looked at me, took a sip of the milk, and spat it out onto the glass. What I want you to do, he said, is to press your face against that milk stain, really smash it up against there as hard as you can. When I hesitated, he said, Don't worry, the glass isn't going to fall. We've made sure of that. In his mind, this was my only concern, that the glass might break.
3: So, a servant leads me into the house, and I walk into this paneled office where Bobby Fingerton raised her fat head and you know, lowers those little half-glasses people wear when they want to look smart or something. Now, I don't know what she's thinking, but I'm wondering, you know, how can we turn this thing around and have a little fun with it? Because, hey, I'm a professional, too. I deserve a little respect. But, you know, when I very playfully suggested it might be funny to shoot her dressed as Aunt Jemima, I swear to God, the woman bit my head right off my shoulders. Not literally, but you know, as a figure of speech. And I'm a smart person, so when she refused the Aunt Jemima bit, I figured she had some sort of a weight issue, which, okay, I'm as sensitive as the next guy. I-, I can deal with that. So I said, mm, all right, what if we shoot you as Prissy from Gone with the Wind? Or maybe, I don't know, Mom's Mabley. She was thin. I mean, I was trying to work with her, maybe you know, have some laughs, but she automatically assumed this, this, this expression. I don't know what else to call it. She looked like she was sucking on a handful of change. Just horrible, just hateful face, and for no reason whatsoever. But me, see, I'm, I've I've been at this a long time, and I knew there was no way I was going to back off, not on this one, because if nothing else, this business has taught me. How to read people. Not their books or whatever, but their inner... inner... stuff. Y- you know what I mean? All, all the psychological crap that makes them... tick or whatever? So, so when Bobby Fingerton refused to dress like Aunt Jemima or Mom's Mabley, I suddenly got the message that underneath all the praise, all the hoopla... She was ashamed of being black, and it was like, like a light went on in my head. It was like bingo.
2: I always thought there was nothing worse than a tech rehearsal, but that was before I met today's photographer. Because we're busy trying to open this play, I asked if he would mind coming to the theater. He set up his lights in the basement and greeted me, saying, You're a smoker, aren't you? Do I have the right person? I said, Yes, I smoke, and he handed me a package of novelty cigarettes designed to look as though they were lit. I want you to put these in your mouth, he said. Not the individual cigarettes, but the whole package. (laughs) There were maybe three cigarettes altogether, but what with the cardboard backing and the plastic cover, the package was the size of one of those soap carriers children sometimes take to camp. It was a tight and nasty-tasting fit, but whenever you complain, the photographers act like you're ruining not just their day, but their entire life. This is their livelihood, and here you are, spoiling it with your vanity. The underlying message is that they're doing you a favor. Here you'll be in a magazine. People will read about you and maybe buy the book. Shouldn't you be grateful? I thought of the people who might buy the book based on this picture, and then I withdrew the package from my mouth, saying that it felt silly to me. I thought I explained myself fairly well. The photographer crossed his arms and nodded in all the right places, before saying, What if we get you lying on the ground with an extension cord in your mouth? That might be fun. What do you say?
4: Okay, so,
3: Bobby Fingerton gave me three options. She said, I could either photograph her standing beside the window, seated at what I thought was a very pretentious desk made from the hatch of an old slave ship, or else I could leave. I mean, can you beat that? She's telling me what to do. Now, I wasn't about to lower myself to her level. So I let her think that, oh, she'd really busted my balls. Like, oh, I'm really hurting now. And I said, very formal-like, I said, All right then, Miss Fingerton. Let's try you standing by the window. So, she takes her post, and I knocked off maybe two or three rolls... And then I had my assistant sneak outside and toss an N80 into her window box just to see what would happen. And <laughs> I mean, this guy. <laughs> talk about a good hunch. <laughs> what, what with the noise of the shattered glass, her eyes, I swear on my mother's grave, the size of. Oh, Mom. <laughs> Of, of, of coasters, you know, and her mouth closed up into this perfect little circle that was just, that was just. I mean, the word priceless doesn't even begin to do it justice. It was, it was one of those moments when you know for certain that there is indeed a God and He's actually playing on your team. No questions asked. <laughs> oh man. So, I got the whole thing on film, which was just an absolute gas. I still. <laughs> just last night, I looked at it and gave myself a stomachache. I was laughing so far. <laughs> So After the shot, I took the best picture back to the studio. And we have computers and so forth. So what I did was darken her skin a little and erase the view from her window. And there, there's some flowering trees or whatever. But I blotted them out and replaced them with this field of watermelons that just stretched on. On forever, because the whole thing just screamed mammy but but in a good way, because i don't know when the last time you saw that movie, but Mammy was actually a very nurturing person. the shot was I, I don't mean to brag or anything, but it was pretty amazing in terms of being out there, you know approaching that that line between funny and maybe too funny for certain kinds of People you know? I mean, the magazine decided to put it on the cover and once it came out the Fingerton crowd went absolutely bananas. I mean her, her Majesty wrote me a five page hate letter just just teeming with spelling errors, but she wants to continue publishing these books of hers. She really needs to lighten up and have some fun. I mean, to see her take this too seriously would actually you know, cause me pain. You know what I mean? And stuff like this just tears me up. I swear it does.
0: David Sedaris read from his diaries. Toby Wherry played the photographer. Amy Sedaris played the woman silently listening at the bar.
4: Act
0: 2. The good, the bad, and the wacky. Wacky sells. And wacky is being sold to us. From the new Carrot Top movie to reissues of 1950s lounge music to Nick at Night, souvenir lunch boxes from old TV shows and lava lamps and anything at all having to do with the Brady Bunch, there's a mass merchandising of predigested kitsch in our American culture right now. And is that always a bad thing? Is it always somebody's cynical marketing idea? Is there good wackiness out there?
5: I mean, there are things that are wacky. I do believe in the in the concept of wacky, but I, I agree with you that it's being misused horribly.
0: Josh Glenn is editor of Hermonaut, a magazine that analyzes pop culture in all sorts of ways, and we asked him for guidance in distinguishing in the flood of wacky that surrounds us between good wacky and bad wacky. Glenn says if we want to understand this, we have to begin with the way that things are made, the intent behind them. Some products and films and books which end up classified as wacky are things that were created without any kind of wacky intent. Objects and films and songs that were created in pure earnestness, meant to be taken seriously. And then, at the other end of the scale, there are things that are created from the outset, with the intention of being wacky.
5: You know, the daffy, the zany, like, Bugs Bunny cartoons, Jim Carrey movies, Adam Sandler, stuff that, you know, it was created wackily and it's meant to be received wackily. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with that.
0: You don't have a problem with that.
5: No. I mean, I like Adam Sandler movies a lot. I hate Jim Carrey, but Adam Sandler is great. That's wackiness done really well. You know, like Three Stooges I used to watch a lot when I was a kid. You know, like vaudeville stuff. That's wacky.
0: It's interesting, because I never thought about it this way before, but there simply is wacky which is done better and wacky which is done worse. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Now, um, here's the thing. And here's where uh, I think the, the out of whack is confused with the wacky in our culture, if you will. Um, the way... The way these cultural products are created and the way they're received obviously don't always line up just right. Um, something that was created with a great deal of earnestness uh, might completely fail at what it's trying to do.
0: Let's, and, let's take an example.
5: So, um, you think of, like, Ed Wood movies as a, as a classic example. Right. You know, he, he wasn't joking when he made Plan 9 from Out of Space. He was trying to make a science fiction movie. He thought it was a good movie. Uh, I'm not saying that he thought he was... I'm not saying that he was in earnest in the sense that he was trying to uplift us or anything. He was just trying to entertain us. But it was very an earnest attempt to make a good science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. He failed completely because he's a terrible director. Um, however, he had a really original vision, and he wasn't being wacky. You know, He wasn't just trying to um, make us split our sides at watching his movies, like Jim Carrey's movies. Um, everything that's out of whack is not wacky, if you see what I'm saying. So when we're uh, when I go to a video store and I see an Ed Wood movie and it's packaged wackily, and they talk about the wacky vision of Ed Wood on the back cover, you know, that's aggravating. Right. And Plain for Much Space is just wacky. You know, and if you rent it at all, which you probably wouldn't, you would rent it when you feel like laughing at something. Having a sort of, you know, hipper than now evening, I guess. Um, you know, it's great that it's great that they found some way to sell them and get them in the stores, you know, whatever. I'm happy to rent a movie that's packages wacky if, if that's what it takes to get it in the store. Um, however, you know, I think you can almost talk about the wackification of American culture where we're, we're really not allowed to see anything that's between, you know, earnest and uh, silly. When, of course, um, you can look at, uh, you know, all kinds of cultural products that were meant to be taken very seriously and find them funny yet at the same time have a lot of, back for them or, or find them beautiful or find them, uh, moving or, you know, there's all kinds of more emotionally engaged ways you can, you can, uh, deal with failed seriousness.
0: For example, you, what would be something like that?
5: For me, uh, uh like ABBA, for instance, ABBA is an example of failed seriousness that their music is not intended to be funny. It's, it's extremely overly passionate, overly dripping with emotion and, uh, sentimentality in a way that we find hilarious now. But at the same time it's, you know they meant it and, and if you can sort of engage with the way that the, what they were trying to do, you can both laugh at it and be very moved by it.
0: And then that's your relation to it. That's what yeah. you feel about ABBA,
5: Right. Can you hear the drums
4: from Mendo? I remember long
0: Josh Glenn, his essay in the latest issue of Hermonaut distinguishes between two reactions to wackiness or kitsch. Those two reactions camp, a kind of loving, emotionally engaged response, and cheese, which sneers at it.
4: Act three,
0: the politics of wackiness. Some of the most interesting reporting in the 1996 presidential election was by Michael Lewis, who published his campaign diaries in the New Republic magazine and then wrote a book, Trail Fever, from those diaries. Before that, he wrote a book called Liar's Poker about his years working on Wall Street. On the campaign trail, he noticed that the candidates who tended to have any original ideas at all, the candidates who were the most interesting, were usually pegged by the media as being, yes,
6: wacky. I think that it's not just in politics, but it also in big business. I think you find that, that anybody who's got... Uh, uh, the ring of authenticity. Anybody who behaves the way real human beha- beings behave, in in a context where powerful men are engaged in their you know, epic struggle for power, gets tagged with with being being wacky or being uh, offbeat or oddball. I mean, there's nothing um, there's nothing more uh, alarming or dissonant in national politics than a politician that that you know tells the truth and talks like a ordinary human being talks, as opposed to the way a national politician talks.
0: So let me ask you to give to give an example of, of a candidate like this.
6: Um, probably the best example is Maury Taylor. Uh, here was this guy who'd come out of the Midwest who ran a what a billion and a half dollar company, and whose workers adored him, and who was qualified in every way, really, to be talking about uh, some of the big problems that faced the country. But he was because he was funny, and because he was he didn't take himself or the process all too seriously. Uh, he got uh, he got tagged as being you know kind of odd, and offbeat, and not serious. Uh, I mean, he talked. He was he was the only guy I met on the whole campaign trail who was running for office who talked to me the way normal people talk and uh, who made sense to me in in some ways. And yet, uh, he precisely for that reason, he was he was marginalized and and considered wacky. You know, considered. Um, uh, not to be a, a serious contender, not to be the sort of person who could get elected president.
0: And he had serious ideas as well, right?
6: Oh, very serious ideas. In fact, when you took his ideas, when you stripped them away from the man and you just pulled the ideas, uh, he routinely beat Clinton and Dole. I mean, people would say, we want that platform as opposed to the Clinton platform or the Dole platform, uh, that his platform was perfectly respectable. It was, it was that it was, in, it was being presented. Uh, the problem wasn't the message, it was the messenger. That the messenger was uh, a real person, uh, and and that that was not that's not what you do in politics. Yeah, um, you're not allowed to be funny. Uh, you're not allowed to be funny. I put it another way: you're not allowed to be funny when um, you're talk when you're also serious at the same time. The jokes have a certain place, uh, but but funny serious doesn't doesn't really work.
0: Like, what's the place of the jokes?
6: A joke is uh, in politics is something you tell at the beginning of your serious speech, and everybody knows it's the joke because it's the beginning of the speech, and it's the one about the three farmers in Iowa. I mean, it's a, its not actually funny. It's a ritual joke, uh, but to be actually funny, that's that—that's dangerous. Uh, to to use humor uh, as a as a way of conveying ideas, uh, that's not so good. It makes people nervous.
0: I remember one of the one of the most memorable scenes in Trail Fever uh, when you were out there is that you had heard about Alan Keyes, uh, Republican candidate, very serious guy, and you'd heard about him, and you were anticipating he was going to be completely wacky from what you had heard.
6: Wacky is putting it kindly. I thought he was possibly insane. Uh, all you heard about this guy was this 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 crazy black man running for the Republican nomination, uh, and uh, nobody takes him seriously. But when you actually got out there with him...
0: Yeah, then you actually went and saw one of his speeches.
6: And, and, and it was the most extraordinary thing. I mean, he was in the middle of the, the dead of a, a winter, in the middle of a snowstorm, in the middle of Iowa. And, you know, 500 far, farmers turn out to uh, to hear Alan Keyes say what he has to say. And it turns out that he's speaking very sincerely to um, uh, to, to to what people want to hear. And he... he um, his, he had a single message, and the message was, look, America, all you want to talk about is money and money problems, the deficit, taxes, so on and so forth. But the real problems in this country are moral problems, not money problems. He was genuinely a moralist, and the way he presented it, his his, uh, his views was um, pulpit something. I mean, he burned the paint off the walls when he talked. It was the most ext- ext- extraordinary display of oratorical skill. But even that, that was, in fact, doesn't really have its place in presidential politics anymore because it's, um, it's extreme, it's entertaining. You don't want, that's not what you do. I mean, the phoniest candidates in some ways were taken taking the most serious simply because they were phony. Lamar Alexander was taken seriously for no reason other than he was a great phony, and people assume that great phonies succeed in that process. Anybody who was authentic or had any kind of integrity started with one strike against them because people just assumed or reporters just assumed that this character isn't suited for the process.
0: It's interesting because, you know, the same thing. I'm just thinking about w- what you're saying about how um, how serious and funny aren't allowed to coexist in the same person in the news itself in a certain way, like in the way the news media covers things. Serious uh, and funny are segregated usually yeah. in, in mainstream news. I think about the network news.
6: Oh, it's uh, Yeah. The anchors, if you really look at them, that that, that they will tell you, oh, now we. Every now and then, they might do something that's a joke, Uh, and they do about, you know, they do the joke about, I don't know, the spaghetti harvest in Italy and where people are actually getting spaghetti off of trees or whatever it is they're doing, some joke story. But it's a joke story. That that if you're doing a serious story, humor never is allowed to creep into it, and uh, it's. Uh, you know, I think you asked why that is. I mean, it's a great question why that is. I think it's because the people who are in the seriousness business, uh, big businessmen, national politicians, you know, national news reporters, uh, that um, one of their great fears is to be taken unseriously, that their seriousness is what they're selling. And they can never let that guard down, because if they let it down, then all of a sudden they open themselves to a different kind of criticism, oh, thats he's not a serious person.
0: Do you think we actually pay a, a political price as, as a nation for this kind of segregation that we do between seriousness on the one hand and wackiness on the other? That is, everybody gets classified or seems to get classified in political life. You know, you're know, you either one or the other and there's very little middle ground. You're either the super serious candidate, a, a little pompous, or you're just discarded as the kind of wacky goofball, including people who are very serious like Pat Buchanan.
6: Well, look, it, it is. It's very clear that that um, uh, that the price you pay is you don't get a very honest public debate. That you there are lots of things you can't say just because it doesn't sound right. It's sounding right is all important, and sounding right means being a you know serious all the time. But the, but the second price you pay, which is and it's hard to measure, that no one's interested. It doesn't ring true the way these the way issues are discussed. It, it does seem like. People just posturing, and the reason it seems that way is because that's what they're doing.
0: Michael Lewis, author of the book Trail Fever. Coming up, what the truly wacky do with the nation's leading business newspaper, how Peter Jennings can help you evade wackiness and seriousness, and Sarah Val, A Streetcar Named Desire, and William Shatner, together in the same story, that's in a minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. American life in Ira Glass each week on our show of course we choose a theme bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme today's program death to wacky or rather 13 ways to describe wacky and in our irrepressible madcap style we've now skipped to act 11 this program goes to 11 self-made wacky not all wackiness is uh, of course created by marketers and merchandisers no 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 it occurs in nature Some people simply see themselves as wacky. Take this personal ad, personal ad from the Chicago Reader. Joining the firm, fun, sensual, buxom, brilliant, blonde, SWF, seeks never married SWM, 34 to 41, exercise partner who also has adipose tissue to melt and would enjoy burning calories, regaining fitness with wacky, warm, enthusiastic partner. A definite physical fitness relationship. Maybe more, sincere replies only. So... We gave her a call.
7: Um, I think maybe I'm just a little bit unconventional. My friends do call me wacky. I mean, they they think I'm I'm pretty open-minded and just a very spontaneous kind of person, and and um, and I think that's what they really consider wacky to be. And maybe also just the different things that that I'm involved with, like uh, perhaps you know I, I know I know how to speak six uh, foreign languages. Wow. So you know I'll start uh, with a language, or I'll I'll be listening to somebody with a conversation, and then I'll just kind of like slide right in, not even knowing the people, and, uh, you know, they think it's very, they, they think it's kind of a wacky uh, kind of a thing to do, and maybe yes. uh, sometimes, not all the time, but, you know, in college, like once I pretend to be a foreign exchange student, <laughs> and, um, you know, different uh, maybe parties I've I've thrown, you know, like uh, in the past, like, you know, bring, bring your favorite wig, or, you know, a Wall Street Journal party, or, you know, some kind of
0: Bring your favorite wig or Wall Street Journal. Yeah, that's bring, the choice: a wig or the Wall Street no, Journal.
7: No, 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 no. Bring your favorite wig party or a Wall Street Journal party or something like that.
0: Wait, what happens at a Wall Street Journal party?
7: Oh, you you, you have everybody bring the Wall Street Journal, uh, all, the Wall Street Journals, and and you let you put them all over the floor and the walls and everything. It's just you know one of those Wall Street Journal parties. That's all. <laughs>
0: <Wait>. <laughs> and then what happens?
7: And that's it. That's all. It's just you know just. Something fun and maybe out of the ordinary instead of, you know, just, you know, just getting a, having a regular party. Just tell everybody to bring a copy of the Wall Street Journal and, and the Wall just, Street Journal party. And then you just
0: tape it up to the walls. Yeah, tape it,
7: it up to the walls or put it on the, the floor, floor. Or whatever, you know, that's it, you know. H-
0: and w- what happens after a few hours, uh, you know, at a Wall Street Journal party? Do people talk about the Wall Street yeah, Journal? Yeah, they'll
7: talk about, you know, what they've read or what, what's, what's been happening, you know, how, you know, they'll give different, you know, critiques and different things of, you know, the current events. That have been happening, or something like that. You know, you
0: know I got to say, you know, that is wacky. Yeah.
7: So. Um,
0: you know, there's a kind of person who likes being called wacky, and a kind of person who doesn't. It seems like you're pretty comfortable with it.
7: Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I don't take it as a, a negative thing, and I don't take it as a um, you know as a positive thing. I think it, it's just a, an observation.
0: And do you think it's wackiness when people call you back for the personal ads?
7: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that we've that we've been told by marketing people uh, in this week's show is that wacky sells. Yeah, wacky
7: sells, right.
0: And and are you finding that's true with you?
7: I think that wacky does sell. I think that wacky sells because people are so uh, afraid to be wacky, and so they want to tap into that uh, thing that makes them curious about what wacky is all about and uh, that wacky people do things that unwacky people are too frightened or too conservative to do.
0: So how many responses have you gotten to your ad?
7: Um, I have gotten probably about 30 responses, which I think is pretty good.
0: And of those, have any of them mentioned the wackiness?
7: Um, some have mentioned the wackiness, yes. They have. Mm
0: -hmm. See, I guess I was wondering if you think that it's wacky that's selling or if you think it's more like, you know, fun, sensual, buxom, (laughs) brilliant, blonde. Oh,
7: come on. What do you think? I think think the wacky puts them at ease. My intention of Wacky is, number one, it was very, you know, it's an honest description. And number two, I think it kind of puts people at ease, too, to not think that, like, you know, I'm some kind of, um, you know, fashion mo- fashion model or some very, you know, serious person that only, you know, only perfect GQ men must apply to my ad and I, I won't consider anybody else.
0: Right. Sensual, buxom, brilliant blonde might be a little intimidating.
7: Right. Exactly. So, you know, Wacky and Warm is part of my package, too. And it's selling. Yeah, exactly.
0: Maria, an advertiser in the Chicago Reader. Act 12, evading wacky and serious. As we've said in this show, if you're in certain kinds of jobs, business, politics, the news, there are lots of jobs, actually, and you're funny, you're encouraged to either suppress that side of yourself or simply become the wacky guy. You know, you can either be Edward R. Murrow or Andy Rooney. And of course, nobody's going to send Andy Rooney to cover the Oklahoma City bombing or something serious. But in that landscape, there are, also, there are all sorts of people who avoid being pushed into either box. People whose work has serious intent and humor and lots else besides. Robert Krulich is somebody like that. His news stories on NPR and CBS and ABC are surprising and like no one else's. I still remember today a fake opera called Grosso Interesse that he must have stayed, it must have been 15 years ago, on NPR's All Things Considered, using the voice of the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Leased into actual operatic music to explain and analyze Reaganomics. Krowich says the thing about trying to occupy this territory that is neither super serious nor wacky, this middle territory, is that sometimes people simply do not know what to make of it. And you stumble into all these unexpected responses.
8: For example, one time on the Peter Jennings program on, on ABC News, Uh, I decided, and he decided, he agreed, we do a series during one of the Olympic seasons. We do a series in which I created something called the Insect Olympics, where I chose, I think, five insects who could outperform the human champion by a multiple of at least 20, as I recall. And it was done with pure joy, and we took it very seriously. So we were very careful to select the strongest or the fastest or the best in whatever category it was, insect, and then choose the equivalent human being. So what, what happened the first night of this series is I had chosen speed, and uh, that was going to be a sprint. And the fastest sprinter in the world was an American, a black American. And the fastest insect in the world, and we had a real runoff here between the entomology departments at Cornell, uh, University of Illinois, and... Um, I think the winner was out on the west coast, and between three different insects, but the one that won was the cockroach. Cockroaches go incredibly fast. We set up this elaborate system where we had a treadmill, and there was this cockroach going at an incredibly fast speed, jumping over little it was wonderful to see. And by the way, when cockroaches go really fast, they go up on their back legs. Their hind, their front legs are up in the air, so they're bipedal, just like we are. So there's even like an equivalency. Anyway, I was totally enraptured by this thing. I thought it had great teacherliness. It had great humor. It had great wisdom and all the things you flatter yourself about. We put it on television, and the lights and the switchboards start lighting up almost immediately, Uh, on Peter's desk, on my desk in my office, and all over the newsroom, black Americans all over the country look at this thing and they think that we have this champion human being who happens to be our race, and this, (coughs) on television, goes up and compares us to vermin. That's how they see the cockroach. Of course, you know, if you think about it, of course cockroaches have a very bad reputation. But I'd gotten so into the insect world, I'd lost the sense that cockroaches are bad news, or have a bad reputation. So I'm picking up the phone, and one person after another is accusing me. And here you are in the joy of the moment. You've created this thing that you're so proud of, and then you're so ashamed by the second call. So ashamed. A- and it was awful. And then, then Peter Jennings did this uh, amazing thing, I thought, which, is, which gives you a sense of how uh, subtle television can get when it wants to. He said, well, what's on tomorrow night? I mean, I was worried he was going to say, let's chuck the whole thing. I can't take the heat. But instead he said, what's on tomorrow night? And I said, well, we have a rhinoceros beetle who's going to outperform a Chinese weightlifter. He says, okay. Then he says to me, I'm going to really like tomorrow's piece. Then he walks away. I have no idea what that means. Really like? kind of like this one. So I tune on the TV the next night. And he's sitting there, and he says, first, when it comes to the end of the show, and this is going to be the piece, he lights up, his face just turns like all happy. And he says, and now something really special. A lot of you called yesterday, we share your fascination. I mean, I was just making with the human and relations between the species and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, like almost licking his lips, let's watch this. It had the effect of somebody stepping up at their own dinner table and saying, I cook this meatloaf, let's taste this. I mean, it would have been very bad manners at that moment not to like what followed. But after it was over, he, he did a non-verbal act, which was very interesting. The piece ends, and he just sits there silently glowing. It's all the way I could describe it. And then he sucks in his breath, and he goes on, another news, blah, blah, blah. And that act by the anchor... And this has happened to me with, you know, Susan Stanberg at NPR, other anchors too, who just, they, if they insist that this isn't wacky, if they say, no, I'm the man in the center, I'm the center of gravity here, the center likes this, then you do, then you do. The calls went 180 degrees the other direction, wonderful, marvelous, wonderful, and I have to assign it. I think, mostly not to the substance of the two pieces, but to Peter's display. Robert Crowich is a correspondent for ABC
0: News. He's currently working on a serious history of the United States, told from the point of view of Barbie. Act 13, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Wacky. Now with this examination of the split in our culture that creates wacky, the split that demands that things either be totally serious or totally goofy, we have this story from our contributing editor, Sarah Vow.
9: One of the most gut-wrenching half-hours of public radio each week is a program produced in Chicago called Magnificent Obsession. It listens in on recovering drug and alcohol addicts telling their stories. Some are hopeful, some are funny, but many are just harrowing. The drunken mother crawling, literally crawling out of stores with her children in tow. The teenager whose parents find her lying in her she, own vomit. Um, she said,
7: my dad said, oh, we should, we should clean her up. And my mom said, no, let her lie in it. Maybe she'll learn something. Well, I did. I learned to try to throw up before I passed
4: out.
8: I decided that my husband should be dead. And I planned what I call today the perfect murder. I've got to tell you that I was at, on Valiums at the time, that I was going to put the Valiums in the beer. I was going to have him drink it, and I was going to cut him in little bitty pieces with a and Decker saw and Humpty dumpty all over Illinois.
9: looking at a photograph of the producer of that program. His name is Jim Nader. It's in People Magazine. He's mugging for the camera.
10: I have cotton in my ears and I'm just sort of making a face that uh, um, sort of nauseous look.
9: Mm-hmm. And it was it their idea to put cotton in your ears? Uh,
10: it was my idea for the cotton but mm-hmm. not the nauseous look.
9: Jim Nader is the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Wacky of Public Radio. He divides his time between documenting the horror stories of addicts and spinning grand pop mistakes on his nationally syndicated three-minute-long annoying music show. I heard about this show before I actually heard it, and the idea sounds awful, disingenuous. What's easier than taking pot shots at the musical oeuvre of the Brady Bunch? Then I actually listened to it. It turns out that Nader's work is not the nadir of civilization I anticipated. The show is actually pleasurable and real, partly because of Nader's deadpan announcing. He's not a wacky guy spinning another wacky disc. He does the show straight, as if he were a classical music announcer riffing on the significance of the post-neo whatchamacallit.
10: Hi, I'm Jim Nader and welcome to the Noi Music Show. Often the very best annoying music is produced when two great forms of music are combined. Creating music so annoying, it's almost dangerous. Today we have the perfect annoying example. It's a mix of bluegrass and soul performed by the Burns Brothers.
4: Now if you feel that you can't go
10: Most of my passion, I think, goes into Magnificent Obsession. Um, The experience of Magnificent Obsession in a week to me is much more moving on on a bunch of levels. Number one, someone will make contact with me to be on the show. Um, I'll go to their office or their kitchen or they'll come to my little studio And in the course of a couple of hours, they'll have sit there and told me their deepest, darkest, funniest, most uplifting experience. And I've never met this person before. I think that's why that's more my passion. I feel it's more important work.
9: Guess what show's more popular? The emotionally gruesome alcoholic adventure... Or Mae West singing, When a Man Loves a Woman. Magnificent Obsession airs on 47 stations. The Annoying Music Show is on 123. On WBEZ, Nader's home station, The Annoying Music Show is heard on Saturday afternoons by loads of listeners. Magnificent Obsession is on at 4.30 in the morning. Even Nader sleeps through it. You might think that Nader would be, well, annoyed by the annoying show's Darwinian lead, considering that he says magnificent obsession is his true passion. But no matter how many times you ask him how he feels about that, his answer is that it makes sense, which is so mature. He understands that that's the way the world works.
10: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overanalyze it. I think people just need a good laugh, you know, I think... Um People are desperate for a good laugh.
9: So, both shows actually are kind of a response to human pain in a way, if you describe it that way. Absolutely. Maybe this is way too obvious, but I I was thinking about where your two worlds collide the annoying music and um, drugs. And I was thinking, of course, it is William Shatner's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. You know, you got LSD, you got, like, this Beatles butchering, and, um, I mean, it's like one of those things where, you know, some people remember where they were when Kennedy was shot. I remember where I was when I heard that song (laughs) the first time. I was like, you know, my world turned around, and, and, you know, I just... I prefer it to the Beatles now. I mean, it is like, it is the most joyous, most, most, most humbling, most magnificent piece of music I could imagine, and I can't even imagine doing it, you know? And it's a complete mystery to me why that is. Like, why do you think that song is so powerful? And people agree, like, someone told me that when William Shatner was on Conan O'Brien the other week that they played Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds when he came out so it's like oh it's not just me you know
10: I think um, I think a lot of that is the power of Captain Kirk William Shatner
4: <laughs> <laughs> cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head look for the girl with a sun in her eyes
9: and she's gone ah! Or even when he does when Chatner does Mr. Tambourine Man. You know how it goes out? Where he's screaming, Mr. Tambourine Man! Mr. Tambourine Man! And it's like, you know, Marlon Brando yelling Stella.
4: <laughs> Mr.
9: Tambourine Man! Which brings us to the fundamental problem of wackiness. Is it okay to like it? What if it can't be helped? Sometimes when I listen to the annoying music show, a show that I really love, and yet I find myself questioning that love, and I feel like the part of me that loves it is sort of dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like um there's some cynical,
10: it, you're cynical. Is, is that
9: it? Is it like the guilt of irony? Do you see it as an ironic show?
10: Yeah, and and it pains me sometimes to think that there are artists that I really like that the only chance I'll get to play their music is to highlight an annoying song. Um, I just sort of grew up buying 78s and old records and I love Kate Smith and Bing Crosby and all those people and there's you know, Kate Smith singing the Ballad of the Green Berets an instant hit on the Annoying Music Show Um, and that's the only chance I'll get to play Kate Smith on here so there is a twinge of uh, uh, you know I'm really knocking this artist in some way Take from the Green Beret.
9: The problem with doing a supposedly wacky show or a deadly serious one is that all the other parts of your personality never get expressed. Nader's two shows must require a fairly schizophrenic to do list. Like One Minute, he's looking for the best possible worst version of Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? And the next minute he's editing the cautionary tale of a drunk who lived in alleys. But if his psyche has dual citizenship, his pocketbook has pledged allegiance to the wacky flag. The annoying music show is his money maker.
10: Prostitution. <laughs> you know, income and getting my daughter through college.
9: Go ahead and laugh. But in two years the annoying music show will gross enough But Nader won't need another source of income. There will be CDs. There will be paraphernalia. Yes, this paraphernalia will be wacky. His daughter's college tuition will be paid for through the sale of hats equipped with earplugs and barf bags. It is a tribute to the power of wackiness That with millions of people in recovery programs all over this great nation, Nader won't be financing his daughter's education with profits from Magnificent Obsession coffee thermoses or souvenir nicotine patches. Wacky sells. And we at This American Life are not above cashing in. Pledge Drive's coming up, so let's take it out with a song. Maestro?
4: (laughs)
0: Sarah Vell is the author of Radio On and a columnist for Salon Magazine
10: Online. Well, the
0: program is produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder, Senior Editor Paul Tuff, Contributing Editors Jack Kit, Margie Rockland, and Consulary Seroval. Production help from Rachel Day, So You Need Davenport, and Laura Doggett. Special thanks today to Ben Shapiro, to Jeremy Walker, and to Mr. John Waters. If you want to buy a cassette of this program, call us at WBEZ here in Chicago, 312-832-3380. 312-832-3380. Our email address, radioatwell.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Eversight by Tori Malatia, who reminds you that he is not just buxom and blonde.
7: Wacky and warm is part of my package, too.
0: Indeed, it is. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life.
4: Mr. Tambourine Man! Mr. Tambourine Man! Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. Hey, Mr. Mr. Tambourine Man!
10: PRI Public Radio International